Welcome to Black Mountain Radio. I'm Erica Vitalazar, a writer, curator, and a devotee of the fire and brimstone love of Mahalia Jackson and Big Mama Thornton. And I'm Sara Ortiz, a curator, a literary dynamo, and you know what, Erica? I'm reminded of a hymn from when I used to go to church, and it goes, I'm paraphrasing here, Goddess is going to set this world on fire. (laughs) That's a fiery opening, and I love it. We have BMI fellow Mary South to thank for bringing our attention to the work of Amitav Ghosh. Amitav Ghosh writes about the challenge that climate change poses to contemporary fiction in a work of nonfiction called The Great Derangements. In it, Ghosh points out that although cataclysmic events and natural disasters were pretty common in myths and folklore, we don't really see big acts of God in literary fiction. We associate literary fiction with realistic portrayals of everyday life. But now that drought and extreme heat and pandemic and deadly floods and fires are more and more a part of our everyday modern life, Ghosh says fiction writers should find a way to include those events and stories once again and write about them. Well, we're so used to seeing ourselves as protagonists of the story, protagonists who always prevail over the present, whether it's flood, whether it's the fire. We think that we're going to pass through that moment, that cataclysm. I think we get an idea of such moments from the movies rather than from the deep kind of interiority of fiction. And so when we see these things happen in the movies and we see them coming for us in real life, we're still laboring under the belief that we'll exist in the future, that we will survive. Mm. So what happens when what was once speculative, those worst case scenarios that you've named, Sada, become present day scenarios. Do we accept it as real or do we attempt to change our present reality? I know. I, I do think about the future where there's no water. I mean, it's very easy to think of that. I think living where we live, I've seen pictures of Lake Mead and how low the water levels are dropping So I've even asked my partner, how long can we realistically expect to stay here in this area in the West? Yes. So, Sara, even though we are aware that our present has become that speculative future where our resources are drained and our water is scarce, we have this knowledge. And even those in places of power who can have some decision-making ability when it comes to addressing scarcity, they're still believing that we're in the middle of some dystopian film where Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to come in at the end and save us all. I say this because I just attended a planning commission meeting a few weeks ago, and there was legal representation from a developer who wants to build further out in this valley, up into Mount Charleston. There are already some homes there, and they've been there for generations. This legal representative for a few developers, they want to build close to 200 homes in that area uh, where water is already scarce. Which is wild, because there was a wildfire there this fall. Mm -hmm. Well, the developers are doing what they do, which is to prospect right? For more revenue, for possibilities of expansion. But the city that they approved of it was the surprise for me. The wildfire that you mentioned and also a fire at the hotel there was attended to by a small fire department who had to use over 500,000 gallons of water Mm. to put out the one fire So I am not forecasting in any way, Mm -hmm. but what happens if among a community of nearly 200 homes, what happens if another wildfire comes through? 
What kind of water resources will be taken or will there be water at all to save the homes of these families or the families themselves? So yes, we have knowledge. The future is now. And what are we doing in the face of it? I don't think our cities are really addressing this new reality. I didn't realize that when I thought of goddess is going to set this world on fire, I didn't realize we would somehow talk about that Mount Charleston fire and what happened there. But yes. So to contend with these new developments in this new landscape, this new climate that we find ourselves, I believe Amitav Ghosh is really pointing to the power of fiction, of storytelling, to ring the bell, um, raise the alarm in a way that perhaps other media have not been able to. And we've seen this with this rise in cli-fi climate fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, the penultimate work that rings that bell is Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Mm. But author Herzog's Heat in 1976 really started to point out the dangers to come. Mary South is the author of You Will Never Be Forgotten. It's a compilation of short stories that are very bleak. They're also strange. But they're also full of dark humor and wit. And In some of these stories, Mary constructs a near-future world filled with conspiracies, viral tweets, panic, a virus is making its way around the planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there are also warnings in her stories not to touch one another or to gather in person. And there's definitely some science fiction-like dystopia that feels a little too familiar. And in our first segment, Mary talks with Alexandra Kleeman about her novel, Something New Under the Sun, which is set in a dystopic Californian landscape where water has been privatized. It's also now sold as a product called Watar, that's spelled W-A-T-R, which is a water-like substitute. The novel follows East Coast writer Patrick Hamlin in a near-future Hollywood ravaged by wildfires and quenched only by a privatized supply of synthetic water. Both writers consider what fiction can teach us about how to anticipate and live through catastrophic climate crises. Here's Mary. I'm Mary South, a Shearing Fellow at the Black Mountain Institute. The week I arrived in Las Vegas, in the middle of a heat wave, a shortage was declared for the first time on the Colorado River. Lake Mead, which supplies water to millions, is at its lowest levels since it was filled after the construction of the Hoover Dam. At the same time, I was reading a novel by Alexandra Kleeman, set in a drought-ravaged California, where water is so scarce that a substitute is manufactured and sold, Watt-R. As more people start showing symptoms of a strange kind of dementia that affects both the elderly and the young alike, The characters uncover a conspiracy involving this substitute that threatens to alter global ecosystems and the collective relationship to reality. But how then, in an age when temperatures are hotter each year and storms ever more deadly, do we portray the climate crisis in a way that the reader can believe? Something New Under the Sun is a masterful novel, not only for how artfully it unfolds as a propulsive new noir Hollywood thriller, but also for how it conveys within literary fiction a frighteningly believable warning about the climate crisis. Hi, Alex. Thanks for being here and talking to me about something new under the sun. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. So I wanted to start off asking about what are, which is as insidious as it gets, but your inventiveness about the various iterations of it as a product is wonderfully playful. There's a water basic, for example, but also many other flavors, water extra, water energy surge, water feminine mystique, water melon shatter, and perhaps my favorite, water wildly wet, as well as many more. <laughs> as someone who is addicted to seltzer, I realized I would absolutely drink water without any concern whatsoever, much to my detriment. Where did you get the inspiration for this ingenious and yet very nefarious product? <laughs> I think 
At the beginning, I knew that I was interested in exploring water issues because I'm from Colorado, a place that's not exactly California, but deals with a lot of the same shortages and, and drought and issues of intermittent and unreliable water. When I thought about how we might deal with a real prolonged water crisis, something like the levels of the Colorado River dropping too low to direct any water to Phoenix, for example, I wanted to apply the logic of our substitutive, infinitely swappable capitalist system to it and see what might come out. And what I came up with was an idea of synthetic water that might sort of mimic some of the marketing patterns of bottled water, the bottled water industry that we see around packaging up tap water in some cases, spring water from free communal springs in other cases, and run that through the sort of speculative machine of the book. So how might we think of water as a product? How might we think that we could improve it if we were to tweak it and give ourselves license to do that? And then what would the sort of endless commercial iterations of that be? Gender, specialized lifestyles, and generally the heightened entertainments and excitement that we expect from products bought and sold when we expect in some ways very little from the water that comes out of our tap. Something that I thought of when I was reading it in terms of some of the political parallels was uh, that I read that Nestle was paying almost nothing, I think $200 to bottle and sell water only a couple hours away from Flint, Michigan. There's a great line, the naked commercialism on display here, the marketing muscle that's gone into making a basic drinking liquid aspirational is repulsive. Absolutely. And I think for a long time, we've been living in... Um a version of this country where water is plentiful, water is cheap, and we feel right to expect it to be that way all the time. But increasingly, I see these divisions forming where, for example, my parents just moved maybe eight miles away to a different county within Colorado, and the water that they're getting costs eight to 10 times as much coming out of the tap because of the different agreement that city has with uh, the water source that they're drawing from. This sort of unity and homogeneity of the water system is beginning to show strain, and we can see ways in which on one side of the line drawn on the map, life could look very different, costs could be very different, and maybe what you're even able to get, which taps work for you, is variable and different. More and more, that's the future that we're looking toward. And to push it up against our current comfortable and deeply ingrained expectations about what our environment owes us. It's something I was really interested to do in this novel. I've heard that too, as someone who is also prone to like anxiety or depression. Either people want to convince you that you're not seeing reality as threatening as it might be, or sometimes I've heard the opposite, that sometimes your perception of it is actually more accurate than people who think that things will just work out. <laughs> it's it's interesting because that split with it exists within your characters in this book as well. Like Patrick and a lot of the other characters in LA are very sort of blasé about what's happening. They almost don't really see it all the fires, which are very close, but a bit more heightened version of the fires that are out there now. Patrick thinks it's not really an emergency if you can drive around it. And of course, he's wrong, and he ends up being very wrong. And on the flip side, you have his wife, Allison, and daughter, Nora, who are extremely worried about the climate crisis. They're so worried that Allison has retreated to a commune called Earthbridge that daily mourns the losses from climate change. And she says, you know, when I look out the back window of our house, I don't see the park or the trees, I see all of it dying. I wondered if the novel was like sort of trying to get us to acknowledge more that like we should have more of a mindset of Allison or Nora and take this more seriously than, than we are and like not be worried about commuting or emails, you know, but like be trying to bring more of an awareness of the threat that are, is around us. Yes. I, I mean, I think the novel wants to play out these different ways of relating to crisis and catastrophe. On the one hand, I do believe we should think of every emotion that we have in this time as a type of response to crisis or catastrophe. And yet a lot of the feelings and thoughts that we have aren't explicitly about that. There are things that happen alongside or in parallel to it. We understand that we want to see 
the world in a wider view and some sort of wider and more collective view is necessary in order to even comprehend their situation. But we're so inescapably individuals, you know, and I have different individuals in the novel who are in different places relative to this crisis. You know, Patrick is still sort of hung up on old ideas about how he can get ahead and make a sort of aspirational life for himself and his family in a place that may be burned to a crisp by the time he actually gets to the aspirational point, you know, if that path even exists. Cassidy has this attachment still to the career that she's built, but she doesn't feel ready to go 100% into the normalcy of this new world that is centered around drinking water. She's going to do everything that she can in her career to make just enough money to keep herself from having to do that. Um, it's this sort of little spot of resistance in her. And then Allison takes the path, I think, of trying to leave for one of the, the better, more eco-responsible alternate lives that are sort of set out as options before us. One of the questions is, how do you wrap your mind around, feel for, and, and begin to act upon a situation that is far from you, that is far from what you're experiencing, that however much you believe it's happening is still virtual, theoretical, abstract, imaginary in some way, because everything that surrounds your body is telling you the opposite, that, that it's not burning, that it's moist, beautiful, and cool, that the sun is shining gently on you. Because that sort of conceptual bridge seems important to me when we think about how to connect ourselves to a crisis that is still happening primarily to people elsewhere whose situations can remain theoretical to us. One of the things that I, I feel can be very angry and also feel very numb about at the same time, like I felt that way a lot in the past four years, you know, very, very angry and also very powerless sometimes and also very numb. I often experience those same feelings with regard to the climate crisis. And I think it's it's so good and so important that you've shown like the different responses of different sort of collectives to it. In writing about climate change and the threat of ecological collapse. Do you think there's hope that it might contribute to shaping or shifting reality? Yes. I mean, I don't know many writers who don't hope to change something about the world by putting their fiction out there or their nonfiction out there. I think that there are more connections between different parts of the world than are visible to us in any given moment. And that literature can help to connect these things. And if that sometimes makes the world feel more overwhelming and like too much, I, I think that that is actually the truer representation of the world. The idea of a world or a life that's manageable, that's solely intimate, that is governed by your own will, it's a cozy idea, but I think that it's sort of a relic or something that could or should become a relic in some ways. I want people to view the normal world or supposedly normal world that they live in with a little bit of an askance perspective to question how real or how permanent it is, even though it feels real and permanent, and to think about what ways they might connect to the world that's outside of that view. I wanted to ask about the little blue flowers that start to appear in the novel. They seem like nothing out of the ordinary to the casual observer, but on closer inspection, they don't singe in the fires and seem to have adapted to the presence of water in the ecosystem, even as everybody is sort of too late realizing what a threat water is to their health and to animals and to, to everything. And I wondered if the adaptability of these small plants perhaps signaled something optimistic, even within the, the fire and the chaos and the destruction about the resilience of the world after the Anthropocene. Humans may not be the future, which is actually something that Patrick's daughter says, but maybe there's the natural world has a resilience or a possibility. You know, I hate to sound so cynical in a way, but in part, the inspiration for water also came from doing a lot of research on the history of plastics. 
and how we kind of believe we can make nothing truly new in the world. There's always a precedent for it and, and something that's been made before. Everything new resembles something old. But with plastics, I really felt like we made something that has properties unlike anything else in the world around us. You know, something that never disintegrates, never goes away, that only gets smaller and smaller and finds its way deeper and deeper into us. I'm fascinated by plastic too. I actually, in, in my research about it, I, I read that they're trying to develop a fungus or a mushroom <laughs> that can like eat plastic so that it could become, since it's not biodegradable, become sort of biodegradable. And I, I thought of all the implications of that, like not only in terms of like things we buy at the store, like in water bottles or, you know, sodas or anything, but in terms of like the medical implications. And then I was like, Ooh, that's so scary. But then it was so optimistic to me that, you know, that shows the resilience of the world in the way that your blue flowers do. To me, the blue flowers, they're a type of species that thrives on water, that has some of the properties of water, that has water, what are built into what it is, um, and therefore will survive. It's also then a symbol of the irreversibility of the decision to make and manufacture and use huge amounts of water are. It's a bell you can't unring. But where hope is for me in the book is with um, Nora, who doesn't voice what she thinks adults should be doing with the world, but clearly sort of is breeding an idea in her head that she's telling only other children around this camp. There's something forming that would be maybe unrecognizable, maybe hostile or horrific to adults who heard about it, but it's a version of the world that isn't the version that we've made so far. And, and that in itself is like a source of interest and, and hope to me. And also that though I think it can seem bleak in some ways, the world does go on. I suppose the world isn't in danger, we are, and that may give us the sort of circumscribed agency that we need to save ourselves. Mary South was a 2021 Shearing Fellow at Black Mountain Institute and the author of You Will Never Be Forgotten. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, American Short Fiction, Guernica, and elsewhere. Alexandra Kleeman is the author of Something New Under the Sun. Her first novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, was a New York Times editor's choice. The story of westward expansion is, in many ways, a story about extinction. And in the U.S., the doctrine of manifest destiny really represents a kind of entitlement to space and to natural resources. And it implies that settlers have an imperative to wipe out whoever or whatever might stand in their way. It is an insidious notion that the indigenous culture and all of that earth knowledge that they held was an impediment that many thought must be removed. And in that eradication of that love for the earth, we can now see that impact on this generation and on future generations. Yes, we talked about this in our last episode too, specifically with Carolina Caicedo's Be Damned conversation. There's this capitalist way of thinking that is focused on the present and how that leads to extracting without replenishing, whereas sustainability requires future thinking and collective thinking. Beautifully put, Sada. Yes. Future thinking is collective thinking. I love that together. Our next story takes place here in Nevada in an area of the Mojave Desert called Rhyolite Ridge. There, one man advocates for the preservation of what remains of a species of endangered flower called Teem's buckwheat. 
The flower is named for Jerry Team, a curator at the University of Nevada Herbarium, who first discovered the flower in 1983. A very small number of this flower still exists today, and those that remain on Rhyolite Ridge are at high risk for total destruction. For our next story, journalist Mason Vole follows along with Patrick Donnelly, the environmentalist who's made it his mission to save the remaining flowers. Here's Mason. On a hot July night over beers in a Vegas bar, a friend of mine told me about a drama unfolding in the desert. A small group of environmentalists led by the Center for Biological Diversity and Nevada State Director, Patrick Donnelly, were working to protect a rare desert wildflower called Team's buckwheat. If protected, the flower, named for Jerry Team, the man who discovered the species, Team's buckwheat would upend a proposed lithium mine in the Nevada desert worth billions in revenue. As I listened in the bar, I wanted to see that flower and meet the people who cared enough about it to preserve it. At home, slightly beer buzzed, I typed out a brief email to Patrick Donnelly explaining my interest in the flower and his campaign. I woke the next morning to an even briefer response, coordinates to a pickup spot in Silver Peak, a mining town near the proposed lithium mining site, nearly four hours north of Las Vegas. After miles on a hard pan road cut through a dried lake bed between Goldfield and Silver Peak, Nevada, I park beneath a copse of cottonwoods and wait at the designated meeting spot. Stepping out of the car, the air already teeming with heat at 9 a.m., I feel suddenly self-conscious. Me, in my Patagonia apparel and dust-caked white Prius, look wildly out of place in the hard rock mining town of Silver Peak, with its heavy machinery, dilapidated buildings, and hand-painted signs on Main Street, warning me to slow the fuck down. As I wait, I keep my head down and pack snacks, sunscreen, my camera, and liters of water into a day pack. Gravel crunches as a truck pulls into the shade, sending a cloud of dust into the air around me. A window rolls down, revealing a man with a straw hat, short black beard, and dark sunglasses. He tells me to get in, and that he wants to get out of town, fast for reasons he says he'll explain later. Patrick Donnelly makes the trip to Rhyolite Ridge at least once a month to survey the area for damage and disturbance, typically inflicted by off-highway vehicles, such as four-wheelers and dirt bikes. But in September of 2020, Donnelly and a botanist named Naomi Fraga were en route to investigate an endemic species of fish called the Fish Lake Valley Tuichub that lives in a network of springs in northeastern Nevada. Making the most of their drive, Donnelly and Fraga decided to check on Team's buckwheat on the way to the springs. They parked and started up White Hill, a dome of pale soil in the center of Rhyolite Ridge, a remote geologic feature in the Great Basin Desert, the only known habitat of Team's buckwheat. On this particular excursion, Donnelly and Fraga climbed White Hill, expecting a vista of bracing blue skies, windswept stone, and placid desert flowers. Instead, they discovered genocide. The dome of White Hill was littered with the remains of buckwheat plants that had been dug up and cast aside. Each plant lay exposed to the sun from flower to root, like a weed ripped from a garden. Fraga and Donnelly saw no signs of vehicle traffic, only faint lines that might have been foot trails. Upon surveying all six population sites, they discovered that more than 17,000 plants more than 40% of the entire species have been brutalized. Donnelly and his team are waging a campaign to get Team's buckwheat added to the endangered species list. The rare flower is native to Nevada, but rare doesn't quite capture the scarcity of the species. The entirety of Team's buckwheat is contained on just a handful of acres of habitat spread over Rhyolite Ridge. Streaked with all the same mineral shades as the mountains of nearby Death Valley National Park, Rhyolite Ridge spans historical territories of the Southern Paiute and Western Shoshone tribes. Today, it's public land, 
overseen by the Bureau of Land Management. The area is remote. From our pickup spot in Silver Peak, Donnelly drives another 30 minutes west on rough gravel roads to reach the site. Like so many ranges in the Great Basin Desert, Rhyolite Ridge is rich in a variety of minerals. Ioneer, an Australian mining company, is after one mineral in particular, lithium. As the Biden administration and large corporations, like the General Motors Company, make strides towards an economy powered by renewable energy and electric vehicles, demand for lithium has soared. Walk through Best Buy and you'll be hard pressed to find a cordless electronic device that isn't powered by a lithium ion battery. Apple uses lithium in virtually all of its products, from iPhones to iPads to MacBook Pros. The average electric vehicle, say your neighbor's Tesla or my white Prius, contains roughly 22 pounds of lithium in its engine. Ioneer has mineral claims on the lithium in Rhyolite Ridge, but has yet to secure permission to mine, in part because of the efforts of Donnelly and the Center for Biological Diversity. Donnelly wanted me to get into the truck quickly in Silver Peak because after appearing on several media outlets, he's often recognized. He's been approached, yelled at, and cussed out by supporters of the Ioneer mine. Donnelly pulls his truck off the main road in parks, pointing up at White Hill. Now out of his truck, Donnelly appears tanned and lean, wearing a white sun shirt and pants, showing signs of heavy wear. The deep creases around his eyes speak to his years in the desert, the hours weathering hard suns and dry winds. Donnelly takes a long pull from his water bottle and starts up White Hill like he's walked it 50 times before, which he has. After seeing photos of Team's buckwheat online, I had been scanning the ground for yellow blossoms the size of golf balls, flecked with crimson. In reality, the flower is far more modest. The majority of individual plants could fit on a postcard, some of the larger ones on salad plates. Each individual plant clings close to the ground, its matte gray-green leaves just a few shades darker than the pale soil that surrounds it. Skinny stems, not much thicker than toothpicks, stretch skyward, holding flower heads that look like dead dandelion seed heads in extreme miniature. The dry blossoms bob delicately in the near-constant wind on the ridge. Donnelly explains that the buckwheat only blooms for a few weeks out of the year, in late May and early June, and the crowns only produce leaves a few months longer. Looking closely at the buckwheat, I can hardly imagine anything more vulnerable. Well, it's millions of dollars of work to figure out how to justify and rationalize destroying its habitat. Now that I've learned to see the buckwheat, I realize that White Hill is occupied by nothing else. No patchwork of other species, no tangle of roots and branches to sift through. Just these small plants and white soil. We reach the broken, rocky summit of White Hill and look out over Rhyolite Ridge. So, if Ioneer had their way, we would be standing on the lift of a several hundred foot deep open pit right now. And from this vantage point, we can see, I mean, most of the population of this species. Right? I mean, all of it. Yeah, wow. Over there, and right here. That's it. Ten acres. Ten acres. It's like four football fields. Wow, it's not often that you get to, like, look out over like, an entire population of a species. As Donnelly speaks, he points out the patches of white and gray scattered throughout the valley, using the names of different buckwheat population sites. I want this because this is rich in lithium. So that's pop one that we were on. That's pop two where we just were. Pop three, four, five, and six are all over there. You can see there's some trees, like the lowest trees mm -hmm. straight across, and there's some white soil in front of that. Mm -hmm. That's pop six. And then pop four, pop three is a little closer. Only a few of the buckwheat populations would be affected by phase one of Ioneer's mining plan. But as Donnelly explains, Ioneer has been less than forthcoming 
about the total scope of the project and the populations that will be affected. Pioneer denies the existence of phase two, and so that when they're evaluating the environmental impacts, they have this plausible deniability. Oh, well, we're only doing this. But it's like, well, your, your document you send to your investors says you're gonna do phase two here. According to Donnelly, Pioneer is employing a strategy commonly used by mining companies, seeking to maintain some plausible deniability regarding environmental degradation. Pioneer has only provided management agencies with the details of phase one of their project, despite providing their investors with plans regarding a second phase of mining. While Teams Buckwheat might survive the first phase of the mine, a second phase would wipe out over 90% of the species, turning the corner from genocide into irreversible extinction. Although no actual mining has been undertaken, the Teams Buckwheat populations have already been severely impacted. Walking back down the hill, Donnelly stops suddenly in mid-stride, bending down to lift up a detached buckwheat. Its taproot is cut cleanly, a leftover from last year's act of genocide. I mean, they just have come out with a shovel, basically, and... Or it was a renegade band of hungry squirrels. Mm. You know, depending on who you believe. Researchers from the Bureau of Land Management and other agencies conducted environmental DNA, or eDNA, studies in an effort to determine the culprit of the damage. Their results were wildly inconclusive, revealing an admixture of squirrel, deer, and human DNA traces. Donnelly and Fraga, the botanist who was with him when he discovered the decimated flowers, reject the squirrel hypothesis completely citing the fact that no similar incidents have ever been recorded involving bands of squirrels and buckwheat predation. Besides, the timing of the incident felt too coincidental. Following the incident, Donnelly decided to place trail cameras at strategic locations overseeing the buckwheat populations, and other trail cameras overseeing those trail cameras. Donnelly cites the first rule of covert ops to account for his surveillance strategy. Always have a camera on your camera. We move around the different population sites, talking and looking for signs of vehicle traffic and damage. At some sites, we peel off so that Donnelly can check on his cameras, replacing memory cards and batteries. As we approach one trail cam, we find a dark V painted across the metal case. Oh, that's new? Yeah. Yeah, this is my camera. I never sprayed it with anything. As Donnelly inspects the camera and works the key into the lock, he admits that he might be a bit paranoid. I mean, after we came out here and all our plants were dead, you know, yeah. I'm paranoid. Yeah. For sure. I've had my life threatened for this work before. Really? Yeah. In person or emails or both? On the phone, in that case. I wait for him to go on, wondering who would threaten a man whose life's work is the protection of fragile desert beauties. But Donnelly stays silent, thumbing through the hundreds of photos snapped by the camera, looking for human forms treading on delicate lithium-rich soils. Donnelly marvels at the fact that the battery in this particular camera has lasted for more than nine months. I ask, half-jokingly, if it has a lithium battery. He says it does. Donnelly is very clear about the fact that he and the Center for Biological Diversity are not anti-lithium or even anti-mining. There are more than a dozen other lithium mining claims in the region that they're not fighting whatsoever. Donnelly and CBD realized the need for resource extraction, especially in light of the worsening climate crisis and the urgent need to develop renewable energy. In fact, CBD is actively waging campaigns against the fossil fuel industry in favor of supporting renewable energy technology and development. But while every mine poses a risk of environmental degradation, the Ioneer mine goes one step beyond. It poses a threat 
to an endemic species that is absolute. The threat it poses to teams buckwheat, a species that has spent thousands of years struggling to survive and adapt to an increasingly arid environment, is total extinction. Given the task of protecting threatened species like Teams Buckwheat, I ask Donnelly if he continues to enjoy the work. Donnelly lets my question hang in the air to dry, as though measuring how to answer it honestly. He then returns to the story of last fall, of the genocide he and Fraga discovered that September day. He describes the trauma that followed, the months he spent bent under the weight of grief and rage on his shoulders. Yet despite the widespread scrutiny and immense pressure he faces in his work, Donnelly continues to find his vocation of preserving endangered species rewarding, and even joyful at times. But this joy is always tempered with the awareness that despite his best efforts, and even winning, one or two people, equipped with a few shovels or a barrel of bleach, could go out and exterminate an entire species. Since Donnelly and his team have brought Teams Buckwheat into the spotlight, Ioneer has been investing in research with the intention of finding other areas on Rhyolite Ridge where new populations of buckwheat might be established. Ioneer has claimed they will bring in over $9 billion in revenue should the open ore lithium mining operation at Rhyolite Ridge be approved. To date, it's unclear how much Ioneer has invested in site research, but Donnelly suspects it could be in the millions a trifling investment given the ultimate financial payoffs. I follow Donnelly towards a square section of land hemmed in by barbed wire. We enter the area, stepping carefully over terracotta pots covered with fine mesh cages. This is one of several sites scattered throughout the area where researchers are striving to get buckwheat seedlings to germinate and become established. If Ioneer is successful at reestablishing the buckwheat population elsewhere, Donnelly's and CBD's case for endangered species status would be severely weakened. Virtually nothing would stand in the way of Ioneer being granted full permission to mine. To date, these experiments have yielded only death. Well, we know that rodents chewed through and drowned in some of these pots. All the seedlings were lost, which of course, if you're relying on it to prevent extinction, it has to work. You have to prove it works. Anyway, they survived for like six weeks before they supposedly were eaten. Rodents chewed through the walls of many of the terracotta pots to devour the seedlings before drowning in the wet soil. Not a single seedling survived after six weeks. So far, researchers have not discovered any methods for reestablishing buckwheat populations. Donnelly sees these failures as potent evidence that Team's buckwheat will not survive and adapt to an active open pit lithium mine. For whatever mysterious reason, whether chemical, biological, or perhaps metaphysical, Teams Buckwheat refuses to be uprooted, displaced, and dehomed. After millennia of equipping generation after generation with the hardiness to adapt to the razor-sharp aridity of the Great Basin winds and a hammering sun, it's no wonder such a plant refuses to give up its land willingly. Looking at Donnelly, standing bent over the mess of pots and wires, his face set in a hard, grim stare, I can't say precisely what his thoughts are, but they're surely more stormy than blue sky in nature. Yeah, well, this is the experiment. Just a bunch of trash in the desert now. From the road, it, it really looks like a cemetery. Yeah. Buckwheat seedling cemetery. On the way back to the truck, I asked Donnelly how the case for listing Teams Buckwheat compares with other campaigns targeted at more charismatic species, such as bears and wolves, especially considering how few members of the public will ever visit Rhyolite Ridge and see the flower with their own eyes. Yeah, I mean, how many people actually see a wolf or a grizzly in their lifetimes? Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter? No. It doesn't matter if no one supports it. The law is very quick. By Donnelly's reckoning, public visitation is perhaps the lowest of all priorities when it comes to saving species. He says species preservation should be informed by science and determined by law, not by its place in the public's imagination. But ultimately, as Donnelly explains to me, 
the public has shown support for Teams Buckwheat without ever seeing it for one simple reason. People have a visceral reaction to extinction, and that reaction makes us feel responsible. Donnelly's view is simple, almost biblical. The rule is we don't let species go extinct on our watch, he says. We have no right. We shamble out of his dusty truck for a final time, winding a path through a rocky gully to the last unchecked population site. As we walk, I picture Donnelly coming out here once a month, alone, bending over the buckwheats in stoic silence, spitting with the wind. I can imagine myself doing the same for a few months, maybe six or eight months at the longest. But Donnelly has managed to maintain the regimen for more than two years, often alone. I place my feet in his exact footprints to minimize damage to the soil, wondering how many others are out there doing this kind of solitary, species-saving work, and wondering how many find joy in it. Donnelly stands on the crest of the hill with his hands on his hips, surveying the last buckwheat population. Anything happening? Any visit where I come out, I see nothing new, and I don't encounter anybody. <laughs> With that, Donnelly turns his back towards the road with a steady stride. A stride both charged with attention, yet stalwart in its patience. The characteristic ambulation of all life in the desert. On the way back to the pickup site in Silver Peak, I ask Donnelly whether he thinks a victory in this campaign amounts to buying the flower a little more time. Donnelly takes a beat to consider the question, then explains how a victory would not only buy the flower more time, but it would also buy us more time to reverse course from a future of environmental and civilizational collapse. Endangered species protection would certainly preserve Team's buckwheat in the short term, but we also need to worry about its long-term security. Protecting Team's Buckwheat's future requires swift and comprehensive change. According to Donnelly, it means electing politicians that give a damn about endangered species and dismantling the fossil fuel energy economy. Change means growing a green economy that harvests sustainable fuels in ways that don't push even more species into extinction. But as Donnelly sees it, even if we fail to rise to the occasion and abandon our future to climate chaos, it doesn't matter. We don't let species go extinct on our watch. He and his team will fight until the last damned buckwheat is dead. As we pull back into the parking lot, the shade below the copse of Cottonwoods long gone, I thank Donnelly for his time. I lose sight of his truck in the dust and climb back into my Prius with its lithium-ion battery. Power on my iPhone with its lithium-ion battery. Drive four hours across the desert so I could type all this out at home on my MacBook Pro with its lithium-ion battery. Bits of lithium-rich soil knocking loose from under my fingernails. In the end, windburned and sunburned from a day on Rhyolite Ridge. I'm left with one thought, Donnelly's, a refrain as solid and sufficient as a nursery rhyme. It's a credo, a guiding principle that humbles complex problems. More than a line in the sand, it's a razor, cleanly and viscerally separating what we as a species are willing to do in the name of progress from what we are not. If everything goes according to Donnelly's and the Center for Biological Diversity's plans, the earliest team's buckwheat could be listed as an endangered species is 2022. Until then, and even after, I don't know if the story I'm telling about team's buckwheat is one of victory. The humble little flower might upend a $9 billion mine, 
And that's something to celebrate, something to borrow hope from. But I fear what I'm really doing is writing its eulogy. As the climate warms and the effects are felt around the state of Nevada and around the world, demand for white gold, for precious lithium, will only grow. Ioneer and others won't soon forget about the lithium in the soils of White Hill. Even after rehabilitation, the fact will remain that as Jerry Teams himself once remarked, a guy in a bulldozer could wipe out the whole species in a matter of hours. And even if Teams Buckwheat avoids that quick death, a longer and equally brutal fate still looms on the horizon. Decades from now, someone may come walking on Rhyolite Ridge in search of a fabled flower that bested a mine. They may ascend White Hill and be met with only emptiness, their footsteps gliding through ghosts with gray-green leaves, dead heads bobbing in the haunted wind. Mason Vole is an environmental philosopher and storyteller. He is currently at work on a book about white gold wildflowers, climate change, and ruination in the Great Basin and Mojave Deserts. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sara Ortiz is the fashionista, mastermind, architect, and host. And this season's fantastic co-host is my dear friend, my lovely colleague, and a fantastic community leader, Erica Vitalazar. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Layla Muhammad are our fantastic producers. Additional production and sound design by Ariel Mejia. This episode was edited by Nicole Kelly. Our production assistants for this season are Sylvia Fox and Sunny Brown. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki. Art by Niege Bourges. Graphic design by Lily Allen. Copy editing by Summer Tomad. And a special shout out to our guy in the box, engineer Kevin Crawl. Special thanks to our contributors in this episode. Patrick Donnelly, Alexandra Kleeman, Mary South, and Mason Bull. And thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gumbiner, Haley Patel, and Haya Wayne. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you once again for this time together, Sara. Thank you, Erica. And if I'm a fashionista, it's because I have to keep up with you, okay? Okay. <laughs>